Good morning, Grace Point, and happy Pride. We are so glad you're here with us today. We are actually continuing a series we jumped back into last week called RE, just the letters R-E, and we're talking about reimagining, reframing, and reclaiming the language of faith. Last week, we started back in by talking about church. It was the day of Pentecost last week, and we talked about what does it mean to be sort of infused with spirit and be the church in the world. Today, I want to talk about a word that has really, rightly so, fallen on some hard times. And I hope that by the time we get to the end of this, this teaching today, I hope we're at least open to and, and have our imagination working on uh, reclaiming this word and, and re-understanding, reframing it, because I think that this is a word that is central to um, the, the Christian story and really is central to the human story. And if we want to move forward, we're going to need to embrace this word. And the word is repent. Um, and so I want to start with a story in Luke chapter 3. It's a story that begins with a guy named John the Baptist. But that's kind of confusing because we could be talking about like Bob the Presbyterian or Peggy the Methodist. And we're, that's not what John the Baptist meant. It would be like John the Baptizer. And the word actually means immerser. So John was this character who uh, in the book of Luke, we're told he's the son of a priest. But John is not working at the temple. He's not following in the family tradition of priesting. Uh, instead, John is out in the desert, and he's leading a movement, a repentance movement, uh, and people are coming out to him to be immersed in water as a sign of uh, their ongoing transformation. So uh, what's interesting about this, and I want to say a couple things before I jump into it, is that John's movement is not anti-Jewish. John was Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. The first people who we call Christians weren't. They were Jewish. And John is actually leading a, a renewal movement, um, not abandoning Judaism, but actually doing something unique and interesting within Judaism. And what I think we need to know is that this is an anti-temple movement, right? Which is why maybe Luke tells us John was the son of a priest, because there's a tension there. The, John would be expected to go into temple service, to be a priest like his father. And instead, John is out in the desert, and he's immersing people in public water, right? And, and, and water that isn't owned by anyone other than the people who are in it. So at the temple, in order to, to worship, in order to enter into um, engaging in the, the work of the temple, you would have to go through a process of ritual purification. And part of that would be going in a thing called a mikvah and being ritually immersed, immersing yourself a few times to cleanse yourself of impurity. And so John, in so many ways, is doing temple things out in the desert. Right? It's almost like John is saying, we've, we've kind of boxed this in here. I'm going to take it out here where it's wild and free, and we're going to see something really, really profound happen. And the reason John had a problem, and later Jesus has a problem with the temple authorities, is because the Jewish temple aristocracy, a group known as the Sadducees, were collaborating with the Romans. They were collaborating with the Roman oppressors. And so the, the institution that should represent your freedom has now become co-opted by the oppressors. I mean, I, it's almost like the Bible's being written today. And it's almost like it's being written about our own times in some ways. So John is not anti-Jewish. John is anti-temple. He's leading a movement essentially saying that what's happening in the temple is corrupt and it's oppressive and we're going to go and do something different. And so, so here's the text and I'll explain some more in a minute. Luke chapter 3, 7 through 9. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized, to be immersed by him, you brood of vipers, which is a great, like, maybe we should, should we start every sermon with that? Like, you brood of vipers. <clears throat> Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits worthy of repentance. 
Do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now this sounds like a text that for those of us who have made the journey to progressive Christianity, we would say, gosh, this seems to be a little hellfire-ish, and so we're a little uncomfortable with that. But let's put some context around this. John is not warning people about, if you don't believe like I do and do this ritual, you're going to go to hell when you die. John is actually talking to people in the middle of a time in their history when everybody in the shadows, they're all talking about revolution. They're talking about how do we get rid of the Romans? What is the path to liberation? And there were some, Jesus being one of them, who is leading a nonviolent resistance movement. But there were others who were, le- who were longing for a violent uprising against Rome. If you overlay that context on this text, when uh, John the Baptist says, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? The axe is lying at the root of the tree. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down. What John is getting at is if we don't find a- another way other than violent revolution, to deal with our Roman issue, our Roman problem, then this whole thing's gonna fall apart. They're they're gonna destroy our city, they're gonna destroy everything, and we're going to be uh, essentially cut down and left for dead. And of course, in 70 CE, that's what actually happened. The Romans came in and destroyed everything. So I think this text is about um, repenting and repenting of a certain way of seeking liberation. Don't don't go about this the violent way because that's going to end poorly. But what I found interesting in this text is John's solution. A couple of times he talks about bearing good fruit, but early on he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. And this word repentance has a ton of baggage and it is 100% justified that this word would make us a little uncomfortable and queasy. I mean, after all, how many of us have seen this word, heard this word shouted by red-faced street preachers who had it slopped on a really poorly made sign and it carries this sense of guilt and shame and condemnation. So if you need to repent, it means that you are almost, you're just so close to being over the verge to hopelessness. You are so bad, so guilty, so shameful. And so that word actually gives us some nausea. It makes us feel uncomfortable. In the way we've been taught to understand it, it should. But actually, if you go to the language of the New Testament, which is Greek, and you look up the word repent, what you'll find is it's the Greek word metanoia. And it literally just means to change your mind. There's no sense of guilt or shame. There's no connotation of condemnation. It's actually just about the moments when we decide something differently, that we're going to do something differently. It's the moments when we've been given better information. And to quote Maya Angelou, when you know better, you do better. It's the moments when we're confronted and we become aware of the ways that our perspectives and our biases and our ways of being in the world have been harmful, not only to ourselves, but also to everybody around us. And we choose to change our minds. We repent, and that repentance calls us not to just believe something different, but repentance invites us to be different in the world, to not just reform our beliefs, but to actually become different, to act differently, to to treat people differently, to live in community differently. Now, here's how the story with John goes on. So he's out in the desert. He's preaching about repentance. He's warning them about what's going to happen if they don't, and the crowds asked him, what should we do? 
In reply, he said to them, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none, and whoever has food must do likewise. Even tax collectors, and by the way, you can see the bias against tax collectors, even tax collectors, right? So tax collectors would have been uh, people who lived in Israel who were Jewish, who were working like sort of like the Sadducees in the sense of they're collaborating with the oppressors to bring oppression on the people. Even tax collectors came to be baptized and they asked him, teacher, what should we do? He said to them, collect no more than the amount prescribed for you. Because tax collectors, as long as they got what the emperor and the king needed, they could do whatever else they wanted. He says, only take what you're supposed to take. Soldiers asked him, what should we do? He said, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be satisfied with your wages. All right, people come up to John. They hear this message. We're in trouble. We need to repent. And they say, okay, what does that look like? You said bear fruit and the fruit worthy of repentance. What does it look like to bear fruit worthy of, of repentance? And what I absolutely love is that when John is asked this question, he does not give them a list of doctrines. He does not lay out for them a systematic theology and says, this is what you believe about God. This is what you believe about the Trinity, which is a thing that doesn't even exist yet. And they won't come up with for a few hundred years. This is what you believe about salvation. This is what you believe about creation. This, John does not go through a list of doctrines and dogmas that must be believed. Instead, he calls them and he says, repentance looks like a transformed way of being. You got two coats? Give somebody one who doesn't have one. Share your food with somebody who's hungry. Don't take advantage of people. Don't extort people. Don't um, take advantage of people in their time of, of suffering. No, no, no. Instead, behave differently in the world. Be transformed. Repentance leads to a kind of transformation because we changed our mind. We no longer think about the world the same way. We no longer think about ourselves the same way. We no longer see our neighbors the same way. We don't see our enemies the same way. Repentance is about this transformation, this change of mind. And when this begins to happen, it begins to seep out into the world around you and all the decisions and all the engagement and all the ways we live and move and be in the world together. Now, this John's preaching was such a threat because he actually, he also critiqued one of the kings, one of the leaders in the area, a guy named Herod Antipas. And Herod had him arrested and eventually had him executed. And when John was executed, that was, um, or when John was arrested, that was sort of Jesus's moment of realizing, okay, John has been doing this work and now John's voice has been silenced. I'm going to go into the world. So in Mark chapter one, one of the earliest things we hear about Jesus in the gospel of Mark, right after the story of Mark's story of John, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus launches a public ministry with a similar message. But Jesus frames it slightly differently. First of all, he talks about good news. He comes into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. He invites people to repent and believe the good news. In the ancient world, good news, which is the word gospel, uh, the, the word gospel actually was a political term. Gospel, it's the word euangelion. It's where we get the word evangelical, uh, which is, is heartbreaking at this point. But um, euangelion, good news. The, the good news was always about Caesar. It was the good news, the gospel of Caesar, that Caesar had brought peace, that Caesar had defeated his enemies, that Caesar had restored uh, safety. to. And, and, of course, the Roman way to do this was just mow everything down. They made a desert and called it peace, right? That, that's sort of the Roman way. And Jesus comes talking not about the good news of Caesar and what Caesar's done for the world, 
But he comes talking about the good news of God, and he says, the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe. And the word believe there doesn't mean believe like I, you know, like you may believe in something. Like I, you know, you can believe that eating certain foods are bad for you, and yet I'll still sit down and eat them, right? That's the belief is eh, trust. It means trust. Repent and trust the good news. When you trust the good news, you lean into it and allow it to shape your life and your experience. But I love what he says, the time is fulfilled. It's almost like Jesus is saying, there is nothing in our way but us. There is no one and nothing in our way. The only thing that is preventing us from experiencing the kingdom, and we could use the word commonwealth, whatever. The only thing that's keeping us from experiencing the reality that God envisioned for the world is our resistance to rethinking, reimagining, and repenting. The resistance, and I think we see this at this moment, right? The resistance right now in America, our, our greatest problem is that we cannot imagine a different future. We are stuck in the old categories and we cannot imagine a future. We cannot imagine a future where people have everything they need, where nobody's in uh, Nobody's going to go bankrupt over going to the doctor where nobody's going to be hungry, where nobody's going to be persecuted based on what they believe or who they love or the color of their skin. Right? We, we lack an imagination in so many ways at the political level to see that actually happen. And Jesus is saying to them, maybe the only way you can imagine this going over is if we start killing Romans, but, I'm, but maybe there's a different way. Maybe the good news of God looks very different than the good news of Caesar. Right? And of course, the way Jesus did this was nonviolence, peace marches, protests, um, and, and inviting people to see this new way. The core of Jesus' work was calling people, calling us to come to terms with the ways we've been going in the wrong direction. And for us to change our minds and turn around and do something different. And as I've been thinking about this and coming back around to the, the, all the shame and guilt and, and the condemnation that the word repent, all that baggage that it has with it, that we're sort of like, when we hear the word, it's like, oh, really, I'm being condemned. Um, I, I actually have some thoughts on where, where that comes from and maybe how to maneuver out of it. Um, there's this great text in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, where the writer Paul says this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. Godly grief brings repentance, which is changing your mind, that leads to salvation. Worldly grief leads to death. Now the word grief in Greek is lupe, and it means sorrow or mourning. So it's this sense that many of us are carrying around right now in this country, this sorrow, this grief, but it isn't about shame, that the, the shame that causes us to hide and paper over things. This is about realizing that maybe we, even if we haven't been aware of it, even if we haven't been aware of it, that our attitudes and our actions and our behaviors and our privilege and all these other things may have been pulling us in the wrong direction. And it's realizing that as we've been pulling in the wrong direction, we have hurt other people. We have re, re, wreaked, wrought devastation on this planet. We have done some really, really terrible things because we've been going the wrong way. And Paul says, godly grief is the moment when this begins to dawn on you. My God, what have I participated in? My God, what have I become complicit in? And you change your mind 
I'm not going to see it that way. I'm not going to think of it that way anymore. I'm going to think about it differently. And that change of mind, that repentance leads to salvation. He's not talking about going above the clouds. He's talking about a world that is made right. Human beings that are whole and made right, living in harmony and goodness with their neighbors. Godly grief produces that. When we become so aware of the pain that we might be causing those around us, that we change our mind and in turn we change our actions because that's the good fruit. It's one thing to think differently, but then it's another thing to live differently out of that. And I know that right now there are lots and lots of people, lots and lots of clergy, lots of pastors, lots of priests, lots of ministers who are completely wrecked over what they see happening to our country and to various communities, the black community, the um, LGBTQ plus community, the way, the way that there's this onslaught, it seems, in our country against people right now. They see it and there's not they have not yet developed the, I can't, yes, yes, I've changed my mind about it, but I, I'm not ready to speak about it. Real, honest to God repentance gets you in the moment where you can't stop it. <laughs> I'm going to say it. I have to say it. Here I stand, I can do no other, right? Like that sense of overwhelming. It's not just changing your thought processes. It's that change propelling you, impelling you, compelling you into the world to be a part of the solution, to be a part of working for justice, and to be a part of the hands of compassion, the hands and feet of compassion that show up in the world. And so I think godly grief is that. Not shame and guilt, but something that calls us to come to terms with, and we maybe feel heartbroken over what we've brought into the world, but we resolve to see it differently and engage differently. Paul talks about worldly grief, and here's what I think worldly grief is. I think it's the kind of grief that is just guilt and shame. And what it often does is it causes us to entrench ourselves in the ways we've already thought before. Right? We have this sense of shame. Well, I feel ashamed and guilty about that, so I'm going to double down on my previous position, and I'm going to come back with anger. And look, when I was younger in my life and in my faith, there would be moments where somebody would bring something up that was a good point, that countered something I believed, and my initial impulse wasn't to go, huh, I need to think about that. My initial impulse was anger because they're, they're causing me to question, and I can't question, and so I just lurch. And I think that's what can happen. I think I've seen, I've seen lots and lots of examples of both of these this week on the Internet. And actually, there were... Two examples that were close to home. I had a couple different friends. One friend, when the news came out about the murder of George Floyd, he sent me a text uh, the, the few nights later, and he said, oh my God, I've been wrong. I, I never saw it before now, but now I see we have a very serious problem in this country. And I've watched him this week engage people in numerous ways, take bold stands that maybe a month ago, two months ago, a year ago, he could not have imagined, right? Because godly grief produces repentance that produces a change of being in the world. When you see it, you can't unsee it. When, you, when you've tasted, you can't untaste. When you see it, it causes you to respond differently. And then I've seen just the opposite. I was in a conversation with somebody that I know who was very resistant on talking about injustice. Uh, she was very resistant in talking about 
the need for change in this country and wouldn't even address the fact that a, a, a man, a black man was executed by a police officer, murdered by a police officer on video. All she wanted to talk about was stores being burnt. And, and of course that matters. But failure to even engage, like this is not a one-off scenario. Breonna Taylor wasn't a one-off scenario. Ahmaud Arbery wasn't. We have a track record building in this country of unarmed black people being killed, both by police and people who wish they had the authority of police. And she just couldn't see it, and she got angry. And that's what happens, right? Because when, when you approach it from a shame perspective, it just pushes you farther back into hiding or it brings out the teeth and you want to fight because you feel you're being attacked. Godly grief does something else. Shame closes us off. It makes us defensive. It stunts our growth and the ability we have to transform. And I think that's what Paul means by worldly grief produces death, right? Because death is a state of decay. It's when things stop growing. It's when we start to atrophy. And if we're not continually open, if we're not continually engaged in the process of transformation, if we're not continually engaging in a process of repenting, of rethinking, reimagining, changing our minds when we've been given better information, then we begin to die and we begin to atrophy and we cease to become a buoyant, growing force for goodness in the world. On, on the contrast, repentance expands our souls. It expands our capacities. It opens us up to new ways of being human. And, and it's a new, just, and generous way of being in community with each other. I hope that what we're experiencing in this present moment is beginning for at least some, and I see it, it's beginning for at least some of us. It's beginning to open us up to the need for repentance. You know, I've said this a lot lately, that we have a white supremacy problem in the U.S., it's our original sin. But I think, um, I think I've been missing a word in that sentence, and I want to change it. What we actually have is a white Christian supremacy problem in the U.S., and that is our original sin. Because our white supremacy has been propped up by our Christianity. It's been propped up by religion. It's been propped up by the Bible. It's been propped up by interpretations. It's been propped up by systems that have been uh, empowered by religious interpretation. I also think it's important for me just to say that I am aware now that I have benefited from white privilege my entire life. By virtue of being a white, straight, cisgendered male, I have actually benefited from all sorts of privilege, <laughs> all sorts of white privilege in my life. By the way, if you're, I know there are some people might be watching this and that word white privilege it just strikes you the wrong way. Look, white privilege does not mean that your life hasn't been hard. What white, white privilege means is that even if your life has been hard, your skin color wasn't a source of that difficulty. I know that I have benefited from the hundreds of years of oppression that has been experienced by the black, indige, indigenous, and people of color in this country and continue, I continue to benefit from that oppression. I am aware and I repent. But what does repentance look like? with this? What does the kind of repentance that produces good fruit look like, that will change the way we engage, that I engage in the world? I've been thinking about this for a while, and it feels intense, and it feels urgent, and so um, I just want to express a few of the things that I've been thinking about as we wrap this up. 
I think part of repentance for me and, and for our broader community must be expressed in engaging the work of anti-racism, both personally with me and also communally together. And as long as I'm fortunate to be uh, to lead here at Grace Point, I will do everything I can. Schedule trainings, reading books as a community, listening to voices, platforming voices. I will do everything I can to help us learn to engage in that work. I also think this is about the awkward conversations we need to have with people. I've been both deeply encouraged and deeply disappointed as I've watched the reactions of people I know and care about online play out this last couple weeks. And I know the reality is a Facebook post doesn't really change anything, no matter how badly I want it to. The actual dialogue, the, the hard and awkward kind that plays out in human to human interaction that is of course physically distanced still, that's where change occurs. And so I commit to awkward conversations. I commit to hearing somebody say something and I commit to responding to that and, and perhaps in a, in a just and generous way, inviting that person to see, wow, maybe, maybe there's some godly grief that needs to be experienced there because maybe there's a change of mind that needs to happen. One of the things I'm grateful for about being part of Grace Point is that Grace Point has long been the kind of community that will have the hard conversations and will step out and lean completely into the work of justice. This is another one of those moments. The staff, the LC, and I are committed to listening, learning, and working to ensure that Grace Point reflects our growing diversity on all levels of our community life. Here's what I know. I do not have that figured out yet. None of us do. I have a lot to learn. We all do. But I am fully 1 million percent committed to learning and to participating in the dismantling of white Christian supremacy in me, in our communities, and in our country, and in the whole wide world. But shame will not spur that growth or transformation. My hope is that repentance will, that born out of godly sorrow, it will lead more and more of us to be part of a just and generous church, just and generous, of course, made up of just and generous people, but then go out into the world and help create a just and generous world. I can't let the word repent go because I need it. I need it more than ever. I need to continually be open to learning something new, changing my mind, and taking that into the world in practical, compassionate, and generous ways and reshaping the world around me. And we all have that opportunity. It's something that I need to do. It's something that we need to do. It, is a, it will require work. This will not happen overnight. It will not happen without some sweat equity. It will not happen without us having awkward conversations and doing the difficult work of building community. But I am here for it. I love Grace Point. I love the way Grace Point has stood for justice for years now. And I am so excited to be a part of this next lean in for our community. As we lean in to dismantling white Christian supremacy, as we lean into using our voice, using our platform to platform the voices of others who are calling us to repentance. I didn't wanna say anything, no wait, I did.
But if I did, would my words hurt like a sting? First a shock to the system and then a continued blister? Or would my words fall on deaf ears and be chalked up to their fears the way that it's been for so many years? I can't breathe. I can't breathe because when I'm choking back tears, my heart, my lungs, and my mind are doing everything in their power to prevent from letting a single drip fall from these dark brown eyes. As if to not let what they've seen be wiped away in a memory. Yet the way that this country has been acting recently, it's like a typhoon is coming through to wash away all of our history. They act like it's a mystery. They act like it's some kind of mystery to be solved when a black man gets chased down by firepower on his day out for a jog by three white cowards. Like it's some kind of misery having to stay home from the office. But if I'm in the safety of my own home, I need to sit down in silence. Otherwise, it might be considered an act of violence, giving those officers the right to act in pure malice. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery. I should want to speak their names. Speak their names and the names of all of my people in the present and future tense. Let those names be the last I ever have to speak for y'all to finally get some sense. A sense of what humanity should be. Of what humanity needs to be. Man, I hope y'all can hear me. Can you? Will you? Please, I am black. See me. I am black. Hear me. I am black value me i've been walking around this life with a discount sign on my back i didn't put it there but it's too hard to reach so could you please help me get off this sales rack i've been trying to tell these shoppers that my melanin is worth more than gold but that's not what the ad showed i don't need you to tell me my worth i need you to tell them because they haven't been listening like so many generations they prefer the voice of somebody lacking in melanin it's not right but i'll tell you this when i get my full price markup none of my brothers and sisters voices will ever be stripped again Once again, Grace Point, thank you so much for being here with us this week. Thank you for the way you continually engage. Um, our, our staff and volunteers work really hard to produce these gatherings. And the way you engage, the way you keep the energy and the passion up, it is just phenomenal. And we are so grateful. Um, look forward to being with you again next week. Hope you'll take advantage of all the opportunities you've heard about in the coming week to engage, to learn, and to grow. Until we talk again, grace and peace be with you.